This is Near Death TV. I'm your host, Laura Ketchledge. I'm also an author. In 1979, I became a near-death experiencer. I chose to explain the truth I learned about the afterlife, reincarnation, and near-death experience through my fictional book series, The Near-Death Saga. While dead, I was shown all human beings are shrouded in ignorance by design, in order to learn valuable lessons in each incarnation. When you die, the artificial facade falls away, and we awaken from the dream into reality. For more information, you can find us at NearDeathTV.com. Please join us as we explore the after effects of near-death experience. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Near Death TV. Uh, we are very privileged today to have Dr. Raymond Moody on the show. He's a best-selling author of 12 books, including Life After Life and Reunions. Dr. Moody is the leading authority on near-death experience, a phrase he coined in the late 70s. Dr. Moody's research into the phenomenon of near-death experience had its starts in the 1960s. The New York Times calls him the father of near-death experience, and personally, he's my hero. Hi, Dr. Moody. How are you today? Well, thank you so much for having me on your program. I'm just really happy to be with you. Well, I tell you, my near-death experience was in 1979, and I was very isolated. I have yet to read your book. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons I'm doing the show is to spread awareness. Uh, Dr. Moody, I've seen some of your interviews and you speak about having different types of near-death experiences. So during your research, you've met so many people, you've interviewed, you've documented. Can you tell the listeners, can you explain to them the different types of near-death experiences? Well, you know, the way I look at it is... Um, <clears throat> experiences that people have when they are for example um, undergo a cardiac arrest from which they're revived or when they come close to death and are revived um, there if you look at hundreds and hundreds of cases you'll see that there are about um, 15 common elements altogether mm -hmm. and uh, some people may have one or two or three of them, or some may have five or six, or, you know, rarely somebody may have the whole picture of all the 15 elements. And it seems to correspond or correlate pretty nicely with um, uh, how close people got to death, like if it was only a momentary respiratory arrest, for example, they may have... They may say that I got out of my body and I was looking down, but people who have a cardiac arrest, which goes on for a longer period of time, may describe more of it. They say that they get out of their body and they look down and they see the resuscitation going on down below, and they uh, become aware of a passageway of some sort, and they go through that passageway into an incredibly brilliant light and... Um, 
uh, feel that relatives or friends of theirs who have already died seem to be there to greet them and to help them through this transition. And uh, they undergo panoramic memory in which they say everything they've ever done is displayed around them in a sort of holographic panorama, which um, they witness from the point of view of the people with whom they've interacted. So if you see yourself in that panorama, panorama being unkind to mm-hmm. someone, then in, um, when you review, view it, you are that person and you feel their, their hurt and so on. Um, and uh, often people conduct this review in the, in the presence of a being of complete light and love who whatever um, sort of helps them through this transition. And so that is the kind of thing that people tell us. Now, as I said, um, uh, not everybody gets the whole picture, and it seems to correlate with how long they were out as to how deeply into this picture they get. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, with your extensive uh, research, uh, Dr. Moody, into near-death experiences, what were, what were the most remarkable shift in people's values that they related to you? Well, you know, I uh, am a psychiatrist, and I tend to uh, think of people in terms of um, um, what they're chasing, right? Like some people chase money or some people chase power or fame or, uh, as in my case, I've spent my life chasing knowledge, right? And so uh, what we find is that whatever they were chasing before they went into this experience, they come back telling us that uh, the most important thing we can do while we're alive is to learn how to love, Because they say that's really what comes to the fore in this panorama, because uh, all of your earthly accomplishments just, you know, are no longer apply. But what people hold on to is um, um, the relationships and the the love they cultivated in their life. That's pretty much um, what everybody says. Now, occasionally you get also people who say that, during this life review uh, in um, situations where they had been learning something or it came up that they had uh, been taking a course or or whatever, that this being sort of slows down. And the impression they get is that um, as one wonderful man, the first living person I ever heard this from uh, in 1965, told me that he gathered from his experience that um, learning goes on for eternity, that even after you die, this process of uh, growing in knowledge uh, is a factor. So those are the main two things, is um, people come back from this saying that what this life is all about is learning to love, and they come back... um, sort of newly inspired to learn. One uh, fairly common outcome of a near-death experience is uh, people go down to the local college and sign up for courses. Another one, and this is 
some a lot rarer, but it does occur. Is uh, occasionally you get people who've never had any interest in art whatsoever or music, and yet when they come back from this um, this experience, they they tell us that they uh, you know were and feel that they are they got artistic inspiration or whatever. I, Thirty years ago, I guess now in in um, Toronto, I met this wonderful woman who was elderly, and she was a, a renowned artist, a prize-winning artist in Toronto. And she brought me some of her um, pictures in those big uh, leather zip cases artists carry. And um, she had never had any interest whatsoever in art until she had her near-death experience. So this... Um, Opening up to a life of creativity sometimes comes about too. Oh, I think that's beautiful. Uh, did some of the people that you interviewed return with any uh, psychic abilities? Well, you know, what people say is that after this uh, encounter, that they became more sensitive to people. That uh, I remember a woman I interviewed in my hometown of Macon, Georgia, back in 1974, I guess it was. Uh, uh, she had been a, a medical receptionist. My dad was a doctor, and she, uh, she one of his colleagues, another medical doctor, this was his... Um, is receptionist, and that's how I, I met her. And uh, um, she was talking about this, that after her near-death experience, she she just felt like she had an inside track to people, you know, that more intuitive when she would walk into an elevator with somebody, for example. She would be able to pick up on their, um, you know, what was going on with them. So you do hear that, yeah. I think that's very fascinating. Uh, perchance, was anyone shown a past life? Yes, those do occur, and um, although they seem relatively rare. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the first two I heard were Southern Baptists uh, who had, um, you know, never any uh, exposure to the idea of reincarnation, and yet had been sort of devoted to that particular religion throughout their life. But in their near-death experiences, saw one man told me, for example, that just before his life review started, that he something zoomed by. He said it was like a previous existence. Um, and this other woman I'm mentioning, who was a, a Southern Baptist, said that uh, she had a really dramatic near-death experience, which occurred during a cholecystectomy, you know, gallbladder operation, and she was uh, had a cardiac arrest that went on at least for 20 minutes. I oh got to talk to the um, the doctor who resuscitated her, and this this experience she had changed his life and uh, the life of a lot of other people around her because it was so uh, astonishing and. Um, he uh, uh, told me, you know, that really medically there was no way she could have possibly survived. But, you know, she then went on for another 20 years or so. And um, so she 
told me that when she saw this life review, she and she said, as people do, as you know too, it's there are no words for this, right? That people say that when you enter into some other dimension of reality, the words we have on this side just won't hack it, right? So that really, there's not a clear, literal way of saying this. But she said, the best she could describe it would say would to say is that. Um, on some of the events that she, in this review from her present life, the one she was just finishing, <clears throat> she said there were, what she said were like filaments of light. That was the word she used. <clears throat> and she said that she could trace these filaments and watch them, and they would go back to previous lives and specific events in previous lives, like Specific events in her previous life were connected, mm-hmm. uh, and her present life were connected with things that she had apparently experienced in past lives. And one of them, for example, this was the one I was, you know, really was the most fascinating one to me. She and, and I also I got to know her sisters very well. She had two uh, grown uh, older sisters mm-hmm. and. Her mother was already dead by the time I met her, but I knew her father very well. And the living relatives all confirmed this stuff exactly as she said. Um, But when she was three years old in the present life, and and I lived in the same house all her life, actually. She was in her, I guess, 70s when she died, but all her life in this one little house. And... uh, so when she was three, she had run out in front of them. This was probably in the 30s, I guess, or 20s maybe. And she ran out in front of her house across the road, and that was in the era before seatbelts. And the car coming along the road had a, a child, three years old, was sitting, standing in the front seat like people used to do. I remember doing oh, it myself. Me too. <laughs> and so... As Vi dashed out in front of the car, the driver of the car, of course, slammed on back brakes. And that threw the three-year-old child in the front seat down and killed the child. Now, in this life review, Vi said that the filament from that event went back to this previous event. She said she doesn't know where it was, but it was... Uh, she said there, it was the horse and buggy days. And in this scenario, she was sitting on the front seat of the, the carriage, horse-drawn carriage, mm-hmm. and, uh, and she, as a three-year-old child. And as she was looking for it, she saw a child run out in front of the horses um, who she recognized. It like she it clicked with her that that was the child who had been killed in the accident in the twenty, but that in this case she was the one that was killed. You see, and the child who was running across in front of the horses lived. So I mean that's one and and you know you might think well this would be more common with people you know having um. Uh, um, reviews of your past life would probably be more common in India or where, but I don't think so. I mean, I've had, 
I, I met a man from Indy, a medical doctor who had a, a near-death experience in which he reviewed one of his past lives. But I've had plenty of other people from India who, you know, they had sort of a typical near-death experience with no mm-hmm. inkling of past lives. Oh, my. Um are people that have had a near-death experience more able to see spirits afterwards, perhaps a full-bodied apparition, or um, the feeling? Not that I can tell. I don't, I don't think so. It, a matter of fact, I get almost the opposite from people. People say um, uh, that at, for the rest of their lives after this event, that they have a sort of nostalgia and a, um, uh, you know, a longing for that state that they experienced while from the earthly point of view they were dead. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, it doesn't grant them apparently any more privileged access than the average other person to, to have had something like this. George, my friend George Ritchie used to express that. I did not uh, know that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm sure there are exceptions, but mm-hmm. as a general rule, people say that, um, you know, it, does, it doesn't give them any better access to the other side than the rest of us. Okay. okay. In daily life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always believe that um, you know, we all have maybe a pinch of psychic, but nobody's bought, got a full cup myself. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, it is just so, I mean, I am, I am not a parapsychologist. I, you know, that to me is a pseudoscience. And um, in my own take on all, I, um, I think there's major conceptual problems with the whole notion of reading somebody else's mind or psychic things and all. I mean, not that I say it doesn't exist. I'm just saying that mm-hmm. I think it's a very complicated thing to think about this stuff. And, and, and the scientific method in 2020 is not yet at, up to the... This is still a philosophical problem. Um, but that said, i got to say, there's just wild things. Like, for example... Um, <laughs> I was a forensic psychiatrist. I worked in a unit for the criminally insane. And I got, you know, we had mass murderers and paranoid schizophrenic killers mostly. And uh, some, you know, really weird serial killers, the odd, you know, the very odd ones we would have. And, um, and I have, in retrospect, looking back on that, I've come to realize that it's, it's kind of baptism by fire. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a, you're not scared because your curiosity dominates. But nonetheless, the, the, um, you know, it, it objectively is scary. And so, and so, I guess you, a lot of it goes unconscious. You notice things without even, even uh, knowing why you're noticing them. And so the. That is a preface to say. You remember about a year or so ago there was a uh, 12, I think it was, bomb packages turned up in some Democratic senators' offices. And you oh, remember yeah, that? 
Yes. Well, on the day that that was came out in the news, um, my wife and I were getting ready to walk out the door, and we were standing right in front of the television. So when that came on, that you know that somebody had sent those twelve uh, bombs. Fortunately, none of them exploded. I said to Cheryl, he's in his 50s. I just said that. And, you know, that much you can sort of um, put down to experience, right? But just briefly after I said that to Cheryl, I heard, and it wasn't just like a mental image. It was more like a voice, and it was coming from my right. And the message was... He's 56. Well, a couple of days later, of course, you know, somebody like that is not going to, you know, they're going to catch somebody like that pretty fast. And like in a day or so, they caught him, and he was 56. Now, what I'm saying is that that just, you know, something went on there that is not just, it wasn't just based on my experience you see what i mean there was some yes. other yes. the 50s i could imagine i could put down to experience the 56 which was like in a little electric voice right that's that's something else and what it is i don't know but it's pretty weird well i think that that was a little message but uh so sad to think that somebody would lash out at, at innocent people uh it's unfathomable uh, well, it sure is, and that's one reason I got into that business. And just I never did figure it out, though. I went in hoping I could understand why people kill people, but after a couple of years, I just gave up. <laughs> but it sure is interesting, anyway. Well, we all make decisions, and we have to be responsible for them. I think you're very brave to take on that kind of work. I, I don't think I could be in the same room with someone like that. It would be it's too disturbing for most people. Well, it it depends on your curiosity, right? It's like what drives you is your curiosity, and and under that circumstance, the fear it just you don't even think of the fear because you're so curious. Yeah. It's only afterward that you think of the fear. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that is an, an an intellectual approach, but I still find I think that you're braver than I. Moody, <laughs> uh, you've spoken in public about your suicide attempt. Are you comfortable yeah. sharing what happened with uh, listeners? Well, yeah, I um, you know, I have been there. I, I um, what, what should I say? I um, I had what you call myxedema, and it is a profound hypothyroidism, and. Um, if you look in the books, one of the presenting signs of a myxedema is often a suicide attempt. I had a a good friend, actually, who was a senator. His name was John East, and I was a professor of philosophy at the place where John East was a professor of uh, political science, I think. And I knew John very well, and he, so he became a senator and from New um North Carolina, and then I saw where he had committed suicide, and he, um, 
in the investigation, it turned out he had hypothyroidism. So wow. it's uh, when people don't know what's going on, it is a very common uh, uh Precipitant, I guess to put it that way, of a suicide attempt is hypothyroidism. And body is um, not getting the correct chemicals. It's it's sort of like an insulin deficiency. It is. That's a good uh, analogy because, like a, like diabetes, it is an endocrine disturbance, and it's uh, also the one I had. The version of it I had is autoimmune as well. So. Yeah, and those autoimmune diseases are very confusing because, uh, you know, they mix up your mind and you can't tell why. <clears throat> I can understand that. I have lupus myself. Oh, my. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so does my daughter-in-law. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a bad one. So when you, when you, um, you, what were you shown when you had this, you know, uh, attempt to end your life? Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't well it was um I didn't get the whole full blown picture. My my uh, experience really the most fascinating part of it to me was to see things divide into layers. You know this um your experiential field is sort of unified, but in that circumstance you realize that you're la you're living in a sort of layered um structure i a lot of people with near-death experiences talk about that they say um you know that right here where we are um or where we seem to be um there seem to be other people around who don't quite get it that they're dead and they're kind of drifting around and uh often kind of mindlessly repeating something that apparently related to their life. And it sounds pretty terrible. The Greeks talked about that in the Odyssey, for example. There are the people who are, for example, rolling the stone up the hill, right, and it comes back down. Or the um, the guy who is trying to um, he reaches in front of him for food and drink, but it recedes. And um, uh, that's the kind of thing people describe. And, and this is only with people who have extremely lengthy cardiac arrests. And the picture they get is that, like I said, that people there don't really get it that they're dead. And so they are acting as though they have some... Uh, you know, there's some purpose they're doing. But but also people say that even among them, there are these other people, sort of enlightened beings, who are going in and out around them, try, uh, among them, trying to wake them up. Like hmm. it, like that they're, they're not quite awake, I guess, or maybe got out of their body on the wrong side or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then there is another level where... Uh, people say that knowledge stuff is going on. I've heard a lot of people describe this, that there is a whole um, state of existence which consists of people who are sort of focused on learning stuff. Mm -hmm. And then uh, at a sort of higher level even than that, there's what appears to be um, cities but are 
constructed not of buildings like we have, but are made out of sheer light. I hear you just like, and uh, George Ritchie said that he, you know, when he saw that, and I, also, this woman Vi I mentioned, I, just a lot of people will tell you this, that they don't feel like they get to go into the city of light. They said if they if they made it that far, they wouldn't come back. That's what, I've never had anybody, people see from a distance what seems to be like a civilization com, comprised not of um, bricks and mortar, but um, just kind of like sheer light. How beautiful. Yeah. That's really pretty exciting. Um, Dr. Moody, can you explain what a shared death experiences and why you feel it's really the evidence of life after life? It's a big question. Well, I, I think it's a little too early to call it evidence of life after death, not because it's not an impressing phenomen impressive phenomenon, but because we just don't have the concepts yet. It, it, you know, it's um, um, proving another level of existence is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. it's, uh, the logic we have breaks down trying to compute such a problem. Um, but um, in terms of the impression this kind of thing leaves on you, um, the, the reason why this is an important kind of thing is that the way I got into this whole near-death thing is due to Plato. And, um, you know, in the modern world, that word Plato hits with a dull thud, and that is such a terrible thing we did to young people back beginning in the 70s to uh, before then – it was the classical education model, and everybody had to read Plato, and that was a good thing. Yes. But nowadays, it's, the kids are too lazy to read things. But but that's where I came into it. I was uh, reading Plato's Republic, and I remember exactly where I was. And uh, it is that's where I got hooked, and I decided to be a philosophy major that was my first few days at the University of Virginia and um, so at the end this republic culminates in this amazing story of this guy who was believed dead and revived on the funeral pyre and told his colleagues about traveling into another realm and what impressed me about that was that Plato, who was by then already my hero, I mean, you know, it's just too bad people don't know who this guy was, because what a character. But anyway, he, um, but the fact that Plato took this seriously, because I had not been religious, I was, you know, was pretty much free of that as a kid. And so um, the idea of an afterlife, I honestly didn't realize anybody took it as a serious question. So, so, I asked my professor, uh, Lewis Hammond was his name, about this story at the end of the Republic, and he said, yeah, the Greek philosophers studied these things, cases of people who were believed dead and revived. And he said there's two different, there was two different takes on it. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Plato was the ringleader of the people who took it seriously, right? And he said that this was an indicator of an afterlife. But the philosopher who was a little bit before This is the end of interview one with Dr. Raymond Moody. Thank you for listening. The Near Death Saga books, Near Death Connection, Throwaway Horses, and Reincarnation Connection can all be found on Amazon. Or you can go to theneardeathsaga.com to read book previews. For more Near Death TV interviews, Go to neardeathtv.com. Thank you.